Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on, and today we're talking about the Williams Formula One team. Williams has 114 wins, seven drivers and nine constructors world championships, but has just endured its two worst seasons as a constructor. Hasn't won a race for almost eight years and last won a title way back in 1997. So how did Williams hit this new low? How did it slide from being one of the best teams of the 80s and 90s into becoming an also-ran for a large part of the 21st century? I'm Ed Straw and joining me to chart Williams' decline and its hopes to rise again are Scott Mitchell, Mark Hughes and Glenn Freeman. Uh, well, Mark, hello. Uh, you been out on your chopper recently? Oh, no, I, I, the, the chopper went sometime in the 70s, I'm afraid. Right? But, uh, I'd, I'd like to get another one someday, but um, I can't afford them. They're, they're, they're about a thousand quid now. Yeah, after our conversation on last week's podcast, I did have a look. There's quite a good second-hand trade in those. So that's, uh, you, sh- you should buy, buy a, few, uh, a few restoration projects. Yeah, yeah. Um, some someday maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also joining me is Scott Mitchell in Sweden. Uh, no cycling t- uh, for you, but have you been wandering around in the snow or something? Were you saying earlier? Uh, I did have a little bit of a walk in uh, what was left of the snow. There was a, a crazy amount uh, last night. It was uh, it looked like a full-on blizzard just after midnight. Um, but the the sun is rising quite early here now, so by five a.m. it was it was really bright and sunny outside. And when I finally got outside at eight a.m., loads of the snow had melted. So um, I'm uh, no one seems to have told Sweden that spring is meant to have started. Uh, we still seem to be in where the weather should have been in sort of January or February. But it's, it's nice. It's a it's a nice change of pace. At least gives me something to look at in these weird uh, restricted times. <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. Variety of any kind is, is welcomed. Also joined by Glenn Freeman. Now, Glenn, you're getting a chance to talk about something that's at least partially uh, contemporary. Normally, obviously, you're found on the uh, I'll Bring Back V10s podcast, which I know everyone's subscribed to. So uh, this one, you get a blend. You get to talk a bit about the now and a bit about the past. Yeah, I assume that's the only reason I'm here. Be some sort of 90s specialist. Um, but also, I'm, I'm a massive Williams fan from my time before I was working in the sport. Loved, uh, loved supporting the, the team and their drivers through the 90s. And it's been quite sad, actually, watching their decline. So, uh, yeah, interesting conversation. Even if as things stand, it's not a great time to uh, follow Williams very closely. I'm a bit worried, Ed, because you've basically given Glenn a remit to talk about Jacques Villeneuve. So I'm worried about how much of this podcast is going to focus on Glenn's affection for, for Jacques. And I even wasn't even the first one to bring him up. Whether Glenn is allowed to talk about Jacques Villeneuve or not, he will talk about him. So uh, there's not much we can uh, we can do about it. Uh, well, let's get uh, get down to business, uh, Scott. I mean, Williams scored a grand total of eight points over the last two seasons. They've been the worst it's experienced since becoming a constructor. Obviously, its first season in '77 was with a customer March. Why have things gone so wrong? Oh, bloody! That's a big question to to throw to me for, <laughs> to to open. Um, well, I guess you can sort of split into. Uh, at least a couple of categories to begin with one is that they 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 are just simply not the force that 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 they used to be in this in this era of uh 
the the rise of um, the the Mercedes works team, and obviously Ferrari is a is an ever present plus uh, what Red Bull has has morphed into. Um, they are the, 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 being king of the independence just simply isn't enough to to guarantee that you'll be fighting at the front of, of Formula One. Um, we've seen McLaren slump in a fairly similar way, but the difference between the two is that McLaren has arrested that that decline. I think that brings us onto the second factor, which is I just think for one reason or another on the the organisational side at Williams, they've, they've they've made some big mistakes at the top in recent years. They haven't had the right people in the right places and. The problem is when you're when you're under resourced, as we've seen. Look at how many how much success Force India have. If you are under resourced, you can still have success if you're run properly. If you've got the right people in the right places. If you've if you're maximising everything that you have um, at your disposal, and it's safe to say that Williams certainly haven't done that in in recent years. The McLaren comparison is interesting. Actually, I remember when McLaren were going through sort of the the worst of their times with Honda. I remember writing a piece saying that McLaren should aim to become the new Williams. You know, at that point, Williams had got a good customer engine supply deal and they were doing a solid job with the package and had moved themselves sort of to the front of the midfield. McLaren have, have sort of done that since they, they got rid of Honda and have turned themselves around and are actually better at being the new Williams than Williams are. There seems to be kind of two factors at play here. On the, on the one hand, You've got a team which is kind of fully independent. It doesn't have a, a massively wealthy shareholder owner that can just inject constant amounts of money, which to a greater or lesser extent, uh, all the other teams pretty much have. So it's it's kind of in a tricky situation commercially. You know, its budget isn't huge. It's still a big operation, but by modern F1 standards, it's, it's not huge. But at the same time, all that notwithstanding, they're not even delivering on what they do have, are they, Mark? They're, they are underachieving. Yeah, I think there's um, there's some long-term structural problems that have always been there that um, were maybe disguised at the beginning of the, the hybrid era with um, having the Mercedes engine. Um, and whereas when um, McLaren and Williams were struggling at the same time in you know, the 20, 2018, um, it was clear that the problem at McLaren was more of a... Um, a departmental one, um, or you know, the, making the uh, aerodynamics and engineering side work work better um, together. Whereas at Williams, it, it it always seemed deeper rooted than that. And when they were trying to explain what they were going to be doing next, that those two teams, the the McLaren plan always sounded um, feasible, and that the, the the reasons put forward for the difficulties sounded um, as though they had a better handle on things than than Williams. And I think Williams generally have been um, a bit lost in the last few years, just just uh, without a full understanding of why um, they're struggling, and really with without the um, structure in place to properly address it. I think a good example of what Mark's talking about there is when um, when Williams first went into that slump at the start of 2018. Paddy Lowe was talking at the time about digging into the sort of ethos at Williams and sort of re- rejigging their mindset they sort of bit of an he said that they were a bit of an old school team and uh, that they needed to basically make it fit fit for purpose in in, in the modern day um, and that there would be all of this stuff go on behind the scenes to address the issues and make sure that they came out fighting fit and then 12 months later Claire Williams was saying exactly the same thing because the the way the way Paddy's exit from the team at the start of 2019 was and the, the absolute nightmare that was the 
the, the birth of the 2019 car made it clear that from a Williams point of view, they obviously felt that that review, the internal review they needed in 2018 was undertaken ultimately under the stewardship of someone who, who, who wasn't doing it properly. So then Paddy left and they've undertaken another review. And now they seem to be showing a bit of, um, a, a bit of sort of light at the end of the tunnel as a result of that. But I, I still think they're, they're, at least 12 18 months behind where they should have been because the stuff that they were doing last year they were talking about doing the year before they've also got the problem of being a bit of an outlier among the the smaller teams and that they are fiercely kind of independent they've they've fought over a long period of time for the kind of integrity of teams as constructors they've not been willing to become a b team still doing their own gearbox etc and there is an argument for whether that team should have perhaps seen the way the wind was blowing and and tried to forge an alliance that we have seen some of the smaller teams uh doing do you think that was a mistake on their part mark yeah a little bit i mean i can understand why there's a reluctance to go um down the force india route the the um it would be very difficult for them given that they're employing over 600 people um, to to just cut out whole departments, but um, yeah, this probably has built up over the years um, too too much sort of um, in the, too much uh, resource for a engineering resource for an independent uh, company of of their uh, funding, um, and it's it's sort of counterproductive. And one of the first things uh, Robert Kubitz has said when he tested their car was. Um, he started talking about the pedals and he said, when we get the proper pedals, and they said, what do you mean the proper pedals? He said, well, these aren't the proper pedals, are they? And they said, yeah. And he said, well, who makes these? And he said, well, we do. He said, well, they're the wrong shape and they're not very well made. He said, you know, at Renault, they have a contracted company that they just pay and they deliver them 24 hours later and they're much better than these. So that those sort, that sort of thing just in just a a microcosm of, of a bigger issue that was you know um, needed addressing and probably still hasn't fully been yet yeah there's a hell of a lot of uh of detail stuff there where they've just fallen behind uh some of the other teams we, we, we should say at least that the hope obviously is that 19 is the isn't the nadir for the team obviously having said that the hope was also before that that 18 was the uh the kind of bottoming out point but glenn what what do you think you know we we've seen some promise from the car in testing it looks like it can at least race in the midfield rather than being miles off the back of it so do we take that as a as a positive or is it rather generous to say that's a big upward trend considering last year was such a catastrophe that going from a a disastrous last to a to a sort of respectable last is hardly a transformation it's hardly a transformation but it is a step they need to go through i think we're all we're all hoping as the team are that 2019 was the nadir and hopefully it'll never be as bad again as the car not being ready for testing and then having some illegal parts on it uh, when it is ready and i hope it yeah it did look quite good in testing relative to last year and yeah it's a sign of how far they've fallen that just being able to cling to the back of the midfield and perhaps give george russell in particular the chance to occasionally cause an upset who knows maybe even get out of Q1 or just get off the back row. That's what success looks like for Williams at the moment. And yes, you can look at that against the backdrop of their history that we're going to talk about in more detail and say, you can't 
you can't treat that as success and that, that is still total failure but it's all relative and the key right now is to make sure that 2019 was the moment they bottomed out and that now there's an upward trend even if it's a slow one to start with I think uh, one one of the comparisons that we've already made is obviously Williams versus McLaren but if you if you look at um if you look at the performance of a couple of other backmarker teams of the last sort of 20 years in Formula 1 the the one that Williams doesn't want to become is Minardi where you basically just end up right at the back detached and you might have one really good driver in one car you know a really promising rookie like they've had with George Russell and then someone in the other seat who's who's helping pay the bills basically because they've run out of money if you I, I i hope that williams is going to be less about that and more and it's going to be more of a sort of what sort of team silverstone became when obviously jordan was on a on a downward trend and then the various iterations of um the the various iterations of, of that team it sort of gradually uh fell right to the back and then work has worked its way back up and then obviously as force india in particular became became best of the midfield i'm not saying that um williams is going to go through five different ownerships over the next 10 years and then eventually will will come good but i would hope that it is it follows that sort of path rather than becoming an out and out minnow in formula one well we're going to try and kind of look in the the sort of wider context of williams as well so we, we can start to look back a few more years so mark the kind of last revival, I guess, was in was in 2014, wasn't it? They did the seven-year deal with Mercedes engines. That was exactly the right power unit. So they really bounced back at the start of the 1.6-litre V6 turbo hybrid era. Uh, third in the Constructors' Championship for two years. And we all thought, yeah, Williams is is back now. So has the team squandered that, that reset, considering it slid from those lofty heights? And in 2014, it probably should have should have got a race win. It just happened to not be in the position to to pick up the ones where Mercedes dropped the wall. It was Red Bull that did it. But Mm. did they have it in their grasp to avoid what's happened since? In hindsight, I'm not sure that they did. Um, I think that rebound in 14 was a lot to do with having what was by far the best engine into the the new hybrid era. Um, That Mercedes power unit was probably worth a second a lap or more over Ferrari, maybe five to six tenths over the Renault and the Red Bull. So they instantly had that advantage on two of the top teams, Ferrari and Red Bull. But it wasn't a bad car, and they had um, fallen less far down technically on the, on the aerodynamic side than they subsequently would. So there'd been occasional promise before the hybrid cars. The 2012 car that Maldonado won in Spain with was actually pretty good, a bit inconsistent, but I mean, and that might have been as much to do with Maldonado as the, the car. Um, they got a bit lost with their Coanda exhaust in 2013, but generally they'd been on not a bad productive uh, path, but it, it still wasn't really a, a top three team. But the, I think the engine made it, made it look so. Um, but it wasn't bad. I mean, it was, it was nowhere near the colossus of the, that year's Merck, but it was better than the Merck-powered McLaren. Um, and that sort of resonated as about right, given their form in 2012. Because um, if you'd added an engine advantage to, uh, over two of the top teams to that 2012 car, it would have probably been looking at about third best in the field. So, but it, that 2014 car, it it, it gave a um, it was low drag and relatively low on downforce too, which was uh, given the the power advantage that they had was um, a nice easy way to be competitive in that year. But that that power advantage was never going to always be there. 
And as soon as Ferrari and Renault made big gains with their engines, which they, they did the following year and, and more so later, Williams was always going to be on a downward slope with that concept of car. That that 14 season really should have been, and 15, should have really been a nice bonus that bought them some time to strengthen their technical department. But they just sort of rode the wave of that concept, even it, even as that wave sort of fell away after cresting, you know, the... The aero department was still not cutting edge, and many departments still in the 90s. Um, since the 90s, the whole team hadn't really been expanded with a vision so much as like a patchwork response to the change in demands of the expansion of F1. You didn't have there was there wasn't um, there wasn't really a, a, a plan in place to properly replace Patrick Head as he re- moved into retirement. There wasn't much technical continuity to the head. And there were some good guys there, like people like Mark Gillen and Pat Simmons, but they were never really empowered to radically reorganize. They were never given re- sort of ownership of the, the, the whole problem in the way that, um, you know, a true successor to Patrick should have been. So I think it, it played out as it did, and the, the, the limitations were only really realized. The, the, the true extent of the limitations were only re- really realized with the disastrous cars of, you know, last last two or three years. I've always thought that the 2014 thing was was a temporary consequence of the engine war. You know, there's no question that in the first year of these engine regulations, it was an engine-dominated formula. And as you said, Ed, Williams made the right call. They they switched to Mercedes at, at the right time. But at the time, that the first thing you could realise at the time was they weren't sharp enough operationally to get the most out of the performance boost they had from the engine. And that carried into 2015 as well when the car was still competitive. And, you know, I think there were race victories left on the table during those couple of years. Yeah, maybe a couple. Yeah. And I always I always had the impression, as, as Mark outlined there, you got the impression that as everybody else's engines caught up, Williams weren't ready to compete or hadn't used the opportunity they had to compete on the technical side, uh, on the chassis side, on the aero side. So... Even, you know, as it started to happen through 15 and 16 in particular, I felt that there was an inevitability about them sliding back, but I didn't think they'd slide back as far as they have. And, you know, Mark was talking about a lot of the good people they've had in the team, but it felt to me like every couple of years they were switching the people who were at the top and making the key decisions. And that just felt to me like they brought someone in, didn't necessarily give that person the authority or the time to make the fundamental changes that needed to be made, then they brought someone else in and then the, the previous guy would either still be there or had been pushed to the side. And, you know, what have we seen at the, the majority of the top teams? What's been one of the keys to their success is stability. And Williams haven't given themselves that. I think you're right about the, the stability uh, argument. And in fact, 14 and 15 probably should have given them that stability. And, you know, there are a variety of reasons behind Pat Simmons moving on, but one of the contributing factors was that there were certain things he thought he would be able to get resource-wise if they delivered at that level over a couple of years. And then that wasn't the case, so that played a part, but there were there were myriad reasons there. But 
the kind of decade up to that was just all about instability. There were financial reasons for this, but as well as that, that those technical changes, they went from BMW to Cosworth to Toyota to Cosworth to Renault to Mercedes engines. So they're changing engine supplier uh, every few seasons, which uh, which doesn't help matters. So that that Mercedes deal should have created that uh, that stability for them to, uh, to to build from, and they they often underachieved. I mean, we mentioned the the twelve the twelve car was better than than the results it got over the season, and I'd probably argue that was largely driver based Pastor Maldonado when everything was right could be very quick but those stars so rarely aligned and 2009 was a was another one wasn't it when they had a very strong car with a double diffuser but through circumstances economically they had Kazuki Nakajima in order to get the the free Toyota engines in the second seat and they had a car that could have been pretty reasonably up there in the constructors championship kind of top four something well fourth place fifth place uh, but was a little bit lower because they were reliant entirely on Nico Rosberg. Well, this is the this goes back to the the point I was making about what what level Williams is dropping to and 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 how it can come back from that because in those those years you've just given as an example there are absolutely spot on. You know, Williams Williams has relied on that sort of almost Minardi like model of, of 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 pay drivers but the difference between a williams and a minardi is that williams does still have the technical competence to 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 build better cars than minardi did once we got into the early noughties so but the, the problem there is if you don't if you're if you're relying on those those pay drivers the years where you do have an opportunity to have a have a a really a really positive season because you have nailed it on the car side or at least done a better job on the car side you don't have the you don't have the driver there to, to do the business you look at you you've given 2012 as an example there look what happened a year later they they had Bottas uh they had Bottas step up um and but unfortunately is a year too late I mean I'm not saying Bottas as a as a, an F1 rookie would have starred in 2012 would he won the Spanish Grand Prix compared to Maldonado probably not but I'd suspect that someone like Valtteri would also not have thrown away as many points opportunities as as Pasta did in 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 2012 so Williams's driver policy ultimately the longer that period went on for and the more they needed money through the noughties and then into the 2010s I think they you you reap what you sow don't you and you 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 pay for you pay for what you get or in an F1 sense you get what they pay you for <laughs> We'll take a very quick break and then we'll come back with a, a look a little bit more back to uh, what made Williams so good in the first place. Well, welcome back. So, Mark, let's let's look back to the, the kind of earlier days. What actually made Williams so good? Frank Williams was involved in Formula One long before Williams Grand Prix Engineering launched for 77, but the new team became very successful very quickly, didn't it? Yeah, it was, and that um, that coincided with um, Frank um, getting together with Patrick Head, and and you might say Frank was lucky in that he that happened because Patrick it turned turns out was one of the the great F one engineers in history, but was virtually unknown then. Um, but it was Frank's resilience that helped him be lucky because he was around as long as he was just through that you know determination to to still be part of it even even when he was on the margins. So always, always confident that you know, always optimistic that the the big chance was going to come, the the opportunity was going to eventually come for him to put something proper together, and and with Patrick, of of course, he did. Um, but even even then, Frank almost lost him. I mean, when Walter Wolf bought into the team, he, he brought Harvey Postlethwaite and the old Hesketh cars he designed, 
and Frank offered Patrick the option of serving as Harvey's number two or taking 300 quid redundancy. <laughs> uh, Patrick later said I needed a job rather more than I needed 300 quid. I stayed. He said, but Fa Frank and Patrick were were great together. They they were sort of um, they were adventurers, each with their own skill set, and that was perfect for those simpler, smaller scale times. You know, Pat Patrick was a great engineer and understood how to make quick racing cars. And there was this th th also when it was really the FW07 that really got them up and running properly, winning Grand Prix and winning the world first world championship. There was a perfect furrow in time then for that to come on song because Ferrari was being left behind by ground effect because they had a big flat 12 engine they, they blocked the tunnels for ground effect so they they, they were out for a couple of years really com as a competitive force Lotus and McLaren the two top teams of the 70s were, were, were losing the plot technically Renault's turbo wasn't reliable enough yet so for two or three years it was really only Brabham and may maybe Ligier who were in a position to compete and that, that gave Williams that flying start it was all based on that, and that reputation is what got them the Honda deal, which was absolutely the best engine. Later it got them Renault, and that put them at the head of the pack. But these were times of teams being about 100 people, maybe up to 300 by the time of the 90s. They were structured okay for that. Um, Williams, Williams was structured fine for that. But when F1 expanded and the, the structure of your team became more important, they, they, they didn't really do it um, in a... Uh, you know, a, a very um, what would you, would you, strategic way. They, they didn't do it in the way that McLaren did it with Ron Dennis, for example. Um, and it, even though they were still having a lot of success, and particularly when uh, they recruited Adrian Newey, because he, you know, he, he was a, a massive part of that 90s success, it, it was still organizationally, you know, not not didn't have the foundations in time for the big expansion that was following with F1. Yeah, certainly the the kind of lack of matching that McLaren vision with the you know the investment they made in MTC, that kind of thing, and the the fact that a Formula One team could be more than just a, a kind of racing team and actually make it into a into a to a kind of big group. Williams kind of a little bit later sort of did a mini version of that with the uh, things like advanced engineering and all that kind of thing. But yeah, it never never quite came. But I, I guess it's kind of a question of. If, if you've kind of founded a team on this dynamic between Frank Williams and Patrick Head and Formula One outgrew that thing where you could have a couple of driving forces. And obviously, they had some great other personnel there uh, over the years. Um, people like Frank Durney, Neil Oatley was there. Ross Braun was there briefly, I think, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Um, he was at the uh, start. <laughs> early in his career. So they've had a multitude of very, very good personnel, but they never kind of seem to wean themselves off that kind of thing. Because you don't, if you look at the leadership of teams now, it's just not. It's not the same. It's not the sort of the uh, the owner team boss, shall we say, model that it that it once was, where you could have uh, where you could have that. But that is what makes Williams quite distinct now as well. And there's still this sort of great affinity for for Williams and for Frank Williams and and Patrick Head, of course, who was sort of involved more again last year in a sort of troubleshooting role, shall we say, after after uh, Paddy Lowe uh, left. But Glenn, do you think that character of the team is a bit of a millstone that the history has uh, has kind of dogged it more in in recent years rather than it just sort of getting on with being the best it can be for the modern era. Yeah, I think I think it's got some fundamental principles that it hasn't wanted to get away from, but you have to move with the times and everybody has, you know, the, the if you're looking at long running teams, we've already made the McLaren comparison there and how Ron Dennis brought that team into the 21st century with the changes he made behind the scenes. Obviously, the other longest running team is 
is Ferrari. And I think for, for all of Ferrari's problems from time to time that they have in the modern era, they, I don't get the impression that as a company and as a team, they worry too much about their, their racing ethos from the first few decades of, of their existence. They have, they've tried to move at the times. They might not have done it right every time. And there's certainly been a few eras of anarchy through Ferrari's existence in F1, but they have tried to go with those changes and go with revolutions on track and off track. And I would, I think it'd be unfair to say that Claire Williams and co are sat there going, this has got to be how Frank and Patrick made it in the, in the seventies. But you can tell from some of the things you hear and, and as we've touched on already, maybe trying to resist some of the things that the midfield or the smaller teams have to do to compete in uh, what, you know, what's going to be the 2020s. Um, I, I would hope for Williams's sake that, you know, the, the, the bottoming out that we talked about of last year has made them realise that now's not the time to worry about being what you were or being what Frank always wanted. And they have got to move with the times. And I, I'm still not entirely convinced that they've worked out how to do that. I I agree with with Glenn because um, Williams, you know, Claire Claire still talks extremely extremely proudly of the team's heritage, and that that's all well and good. And she 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 talks in 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 terms of you know you know Frank built this team for it to be you know it operates in a certain way, and we don't want to move around that. There's nothing wrong with them being proud of their independent status, but the problem is that it's almost there's no point in being uh, proud to the to, to a fault, and uh, the issue they've got is being. There's certain things about the business now where they want to be independent, pretty much for the sake of being independent. It seems I don't really see why why that has to be the case. So th- that that historical sort of th- that his- that heritage that you talk about, Ed, is is um, I think it's a it, it's a curse in some ways, but only only insofar as the the company itself doesn't seem to be able to to shed the baggage of uh, of operating in a certain way. The one thing I would say in its favour is that heritage and the way Frank ran the team, and you know the, the the efforts that Frank and Patrick made are pretty much the only reason that Williams don't get a massive kicking now, because there are teams on the grid who, if they perform to the level that Williams have performed over the last two years, would be torn to shreds and. At their worst, you know, we do call Williams out on it, and and everyone calls Williams out on it. But I don't know. I don't know if you know you, Ed, or or, or Mark feel the same. But I do feel that Williams is just given a a little bit more of, of affection, almost because of it, because of its heritage. No, no question. People like Williams, don't they? Yeah, it's it's everybody's favourite team, isn't it? Or if if they if they're Ferrari fans, it's their second favourite team. You know, it's. Um, Yes, they are, they are given a, a, an easier ride, um, but um, you know it, it's you, you can't be blind to the to the, the shortcomings, and I think it's just it's got itself into a bit of a, a vicious circle in 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 that, that lack of vision, lack of succession planning. I guess really, it's it's in every area. It, it, it it's you know it, it it's from the finances down and it, it all just feeds into the same <clears throat> downward trend in, in performance which makes it harder and harder and harder to, to break out of it so um, I think the idea of Williams be, being one day uh, a top team again and fighting for championships I, I really can't see in its present form I can't see that day uh, coming 
Um, I think all it has to uh, realistically aim for at the moment is to become um, able to fight in that midfield uh, and operate uh, financially securely and try and uh, build from that and have much longer term uh, foundation planning. Well, we talked a little bit about that that 2014 revival that, that was squandered, but perhaps even more importantly, Scott, was the, the BMW opportunity. They had BMW partnership from 2000 to 2005. It was a big missed opportunity, ultimately, because they were competitive, but still only yielded 10 wins and, and no titles. How big a missed opportunity do you think that period was for Williams to kind of bring itself literally into the 21st century? Well, in, in this in this case, hindsight is a wonderful thing because we can emphatically state it's an enormous missed opportunity because of the decline that, that's followed. That was, um, you know, if you if you look at the a point that was made earlier in this podcast, if you looked at twenty fourteen as that opportunity to have a a free hit almost at the start of the engine era and get everything else up to speed and then build momentum, that early noughties period with BMW was the opportunity to 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 reposition Williams as a leading force in, in F1 after a couple of uh, after, after a couple of years of, of just sort of not getting things quite right and with with what they had with BMW was was obviously a partner that um, was much more than just a, an engine supplier and it was that was the sort of ingredient that McLaren wanted to have with Honda when they made that switch in 2015 it's an opportunity to get to steal a march on your opposition um, have something that's absolutely perfectly craft, crafted to be be an absolute machine, and I just it just was never quite up to it, was it? You can cast aspersions over the quality of the the two drivers, but one Pablo Montoya made it quite clear early on that he was up for the fight. Unfortunately, the the, the cars never quite were. That was the issue. I, I think the, the senior people at Williams from the time have been quite honest about this now, but. Perhaps what we didn't realise at the time was quite how much the amazing BMW engine, once it came on song, was disguising some of the other deficiencies Williams had. So I think perhaps maybe with the exception of the 2003 car, which found a sweet spot with the Michelin tyres until they got changed late in the season, which arguably cost Williams that elusive first championship since 97. But for most of that era, even when it was going well, I think we realise now that it was going well because the BMW engine was so good and actually there was probably already a technical deficiency on the chassis side that was being masked in that era and Williams paid for that a long way down the line once they lost BMW. Yeah, there was and I think BMW came to understand that quite early in the relationship um, and were trying to uh, get Williams to uh, change a few a few things in in terms of attitude as, as well as uh, and vision as well as just um you know small things and uh, frank and patrick weren't ready to hear it at the time and i think um that that played into a very difficult relationship and everything started to sort of go downhill from there really after that after that 2003 season where and it really the only uh, a championship might have annealed that partnership, I think, um, and, and made made the stresses go away. But um, yeah, in, in in hindsight, it was clear, probably from two thousand and one onwards, really, that Williams wasn't quite 
at the cutting edge anymore, not not in the way that it had been um, in the 90s. And we should say that there was kind of a double blow, wasn't there? Because in the end, BMW wanted to have its own team. Mario Tyson was obviously very keen to, to be running uh, a team. There was there would have been an opportunity for Williams perhaps to sell to, to BMW, which didn't happen. BMW bought Sauber. Williams turning all that down. They lost HP as a direct result because that, that deal was tied to having the, the BMW engines. They went to Cosworths for the year after. And then they had to go through this really difficult period of kind of financial retrenchment that, to be honest, the part that the ending of the BMW partnership could have actually finished off Williams over those next couple of years. They actually did really well to get it together and rebuild. But you can argue that was the point where they were already behind the curve and kind of keeping up with how F1 was evolving. But then that that completely took them out of that progression game because it was about survival for a, for a period of several years. And it took it was a long time before they kind of achieved a level of stability after that. The, the loss of BMW is interesting. I've got a question actually for you, Ed, and, and for Mark. If Williams had sold up to BMW, would that have just prolonged, given, given maybe would have made the second half of the 2010s good, but let's assume BMW pulled out as it did when it sold back to Sauber at the end of 2009, would Williams have basically ended up like Sauber was at the turn of that decade? Yeah, it didn't exactly save Sauber, did it? <laughs> they, well, they almost went to the wall. Yeah, I mean that that's that's the the the, the always the the danger with a, a full manufacturer team it, that it, it you know it may it may pull out when it suits them. So yeah, um, that, that the entity may may no may no longer um, have still existed um, had that happened. But I'm sure there'd have been a lot of success before then. I think the the one difference we have to draw is that Sauber was coming from a a lower starting point, should we say? So let's say they'd been a if Williams had become the BMW team, they'd have been from a higher initial level, and perhaps that success would have come quicker. Whereas BMW was still building towards its success, and the the world uh, had its had the financial. Uh, the global economic crisis and that combined with the fact that the 2009 season was pretty dreadful and the Kurz project kind of backfired. Kurz project, in fact, that that BMW had stopped from being deferred in 2009. That that's uh, that particular role they played in that kicked them in the kicked them in the teeth. But uh, yeah, I, I suspect they wouldn't have ended up quite in Sauber's position, and it might have allowed them to kind of invest more in the team. But yeah, who knows? We're in the we're in the world of conjecture there. But it's also, um, Sauber's a good example of the sort of organisation that, that Williams just, that it just clashes with the, the, the Williams mentality and way of going racing because Sauber across, you know, sports cars when it first came into F1 or how it was originally supposed to come into F1, um, what it did with BMW and what it's done now with Alfa Romeo. They, they see themselves basically as, right, we're really good at engineering. We're going to make the best car we can make. And if there's a, a, a matter of identity or, or, or partnering up with someone else to make the most of this, then we're absolutely fine to do that. I think you'd like to think that if Williams had the opportunity now to buddy up with someone like BMW, I'd, I, I, would, uh, I would imagine they'd have to think uh, very differently to how they, 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 they acted about it uh, a, a decade and a half ago. Um, but it it just all comes back to that uh, that mentality. I just think other teams are more willing to be flexible when it comes to who is in charge of what and who you know who has control and 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 what things are called and that sort of and that sort of thing. And in the in the noughties, um, in the early noughties, Williams it was the Williams side of things that made that partnership unsuccessful, and it was the Williams side of things that meant that it didn't become anything bigger than that afterwards. Well, let's take one more quick break and then we'll be back to conclude our analysis of Williams. Uh, welcome back. Uh, Glenn, another kind of key moment for Williams was 
that that last title in '97 when Villeneuve won the championship and uh, Williams won the constructors. I'm sure I don't need to remind you of that. That's probably your favourite season. Uh, but this did mark the end of Williams as a title winning force. Obviously, they lost the the Renault Works engine deal. Renault pulled out. Uh, they did have the BMW engine deal kind of uh, lined up at that. At, that stage but probably more important was the departure of Adrian Newey he he was placed on gardening leave in November 96 ahead of that move to McLaren he started working September 97 so that the 97 Williams was still a Newey born car should, should we say they could have kept Newey potentially had they been uh had they done things a little bit differently so was it a massive blunder to lose the preeminent Aerodynamic, aerodynamic mind, design mind of it of its time, and might that have changed the way the whole BMW thing went? Had they still had him? Yeah, the answer is in your question there, and the fact that Adrian Newey is still preeminent today. He's still, you know, at the absolute forefront of F1 aerodynamics. More than twenty years after he left Williams, and who knows if he would have stayed there for all of that time? These people tend to move around eventually. But I think to answer your BMW question, yeah, absolutely. We've we've just talked about the fact that. The reason it probably didn't work out on track with BMW was because the cars weren't good enough. And you've got to think that if Newey had stuck around, you know, we saw how good some of the McLarens were that he designed in that era. Um, so why wouldn't he have done the job for Williams? So, yes, losing Renault at the same time was a major blow. You know, all that 90s success was based around the strength of the Williams-Renault partnership. But they found another engine supplier. They had the best engine in F1, you could argue, at points in the early part of the next decade, they didn't have the car to go with it. So it is Newey that they've never recovered from. And every mini revival they've had since then has been temporary because they've not been been strong enough in that er- in that area. And I think that, yeah, if you could have hung on to Newey, then history would look very different. And let, let's be honest, this isn't just something where we're saying with hindsight, oh, well, you should have given Adrian what he wanted. That That looked like a bad move from Frank and Patrick at the time to not give Newey whatever power, authority or stake or anything like that that he wanted. You know, the man, the man was and is a genius. And as we've seen at Red Bull, you give him what he wants and you let him work in the way he wants. And I think it was more, you know, a stake would have been important for for him. But I think it's almost more the symbolicness of that of that stake rather than the the kind of financial worth of it or whatever. And if you look at what happened, uh, Mark, had they had, Frank Williams and Patrick Ed club together and maybe given Newey 10% of the team, even 3, 3% of Patrick, 7% of, of Frank's, that would have made Newey feel like that was his team. And that's something he's liked at Red Bull uh, in more recent years because it does feel like his team. And he said he kind of recaptured that feel he had in the, the old March Leighton House days. But when you consider what's happened since, and obviously the ownership of the team's changed, they've they had the the, uh, the floats, they've had to sell out to various partners. So in the long term, maybe relinquishing say a slice that 10% number is fairly arbitrary on my part would have seen very very good value knowing what we know now no absolutely and, and as Glenn said it, it wasn't only hindsight that make, made that look a catastrophic error it really was I mean it, it, it seemed so at the time and, and I think had had you given Adrian um, what he wanted and had he been around to create those BMW powered cars the the level of success would probably have ensured that it it would have given the team the the, the time and the foundation to, to put wider foundations down for um, the bigger 
you know, the bigger F1 that was coming, the expanded F1 that was coming, and to really properly restructure the whole uh, company based on the, the success that they could have had with um, the new BMW combination. I mean, we're talking about a stake there, but Adrian says today that one of the main reasons he left the team was he was left out of the, the two driver decisions, the two major driver decisions they took before he left the team. So that was signing Vilner for 96 that he claims he didn't know about, but he sort of let that one go. But obviously he had a very close relationship with Damon Hill and I think he was his race engineer as well, maybe in the season Damon won the title. So when they decided quite abruptly to get rid of Hill while he was trying to win a championship, for Newey that was really the, the final straw because he thought, you know, I believe he it was in his contract that he should be consulted on those sort of things. So he was actually able to get out of Williams' claiming breach of contract and there's a line in his book where he says I let it slide the first time but when they did it again I realized that they were just going to make a fool of me by telling me they were giving me responsibility and involving me in these decisions and they were just going to go over my head and do whatever they wanted so that was really really foolish on the part of Williams as well because it suggests they didn't appreciate exactly what he was giving them and just how much of their success was down to him. It's indicative of the the mentality, isn't it, that that we've been talking about through this in, in, entire podcast. Of, of the two of those, um, you can't say that that decision worked out better for <laughs> for, for for Williams than it did for for Adrian Newey. I think the the the, the Newey departure that's given what he has gone on to do and the impact that it's had on the F one landscape across multiple decades now. Um, that's like that's up there with one of the most fascinating what ifs, isn't it, of F one? Because if if Adrian stays at, at Williams, it's not just the success that Williams gets, is it? It's the it's the lack of success that that McLaren gets in theory. It's the um, does he ever does he ever join Red Bull and does Red Bull ever become a force? Does he um, does he end up being tempted after a ultra successful Williams BMW stint? Does he get tempted to go to Ferrari or something like that? But obviously that's a completely different discussion. But just the, the point you were making there, Glenn, absolutely um, spot on. It's, I'm not saying Williams didn't necessarily drive him out the door so much. It wasn't so much cutting their nose off to, to spite their face. But how many examples have we produced in this podcast now of Williams ultimately putting themselves in a position where they're just setting themselves up to to fail? And that's, that's a really good point from Scott, that we're not just actually talking about how that decision has changed Williams's course of history for the last 20 years. That's had a huge effect on the way F1 has been shaped uh, throughout throughout the last two decades. So that's the significance of that decision. It hasn't just influenced them, it's influenced F1 in its entirety on track, really. We should say Williams probably acknowledged that it had made a mistake by losing Yui because they did have a go at getting him back as well at that point when uh, there was the kind of on-off move to Jaguar and then eventually did move to, to Red Bull. There was there was a point where Williams was in that game of, of trying to get Yui uh, back in. Obviously, it didn't come together, but that that's pretty much a recognition of the uh, <laughs> of, of the problem. So let's try and kind of conclude and bring this all, all together. So. The kind of final question I'm going to ask is one that it's a comparison that's been made for quite a long time, probably about 15 years now people have been saying uh, uh, versions of this. Uh, so is Williams the new Tyrrell? So I'm talking about, you know, a, a a once great team that has kind of slid down the order, had a few little moments, but then kind of reduced to a, to a bit part and then eventually vanishing, admittedly, to kind of 
form the seeds for what later became uh, has become Mercedes today because uh, uh, British uh, American racing obviously was was uh, what, what Tyrrell became although that was half a new start team it wasn't like they continued Tyrrell as such although it was the the entry and uh, some of the things that, that that team was doing but Glenn do you think that's kind of Williams's trajectory now that they're a, they're a Tyrrell that's going to slide to, to oblivion or do you think there is a real way to turn it around that's a remarkably long question Ed congratulations um I I remember when um, in the autosport offices, Ed, that first got mentioned. I think every now and then there'd be a front cover, which was Williams, we can win again. And cynics in the office, in the editorial team would say, no, Williams are the new Tyrrell. They're, they're never going to win again. And I, I resisted that um, comparison for a very long time because I just thought, no, that you know, they keep having these little revivals. They keep, they keep finding ways to fix it. They're, they'll never go down that route. But... I think the last couple of years have resigned me to the fact that, that they probably are. Um, so the 2012 victory was probably a parallel with the, you know, the, the dying days of Tyrrell as a winning force in the early 80s, um, the last couple of Alberto wins. And probably 2014-15, you could maybe compare with the 1990 Jean Lacy-led revival, um, you know, run at the front, cause some upsets, uh, but never quite do anything with it and, and never go anywhere. So maybe, maybe the interesting question you've uh, you've also posed there is, can they continue on the trajectory of that that entity, eventually sell up and in a few ownership cycles time uh, become the greatest team in F1 history? <laughs> that, that's 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 a good question, Scott. What's your position on this? Williams is the new Tyrrell. Um, I, I, I think I, I agree mostly with what Glenn said. I think it is a, I think for a while it was quite an easy and lazy comparison to make, but the longer time has passed, the it's it's a, uh, you know, to 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 butcher a to butcher a cliche. If it looks like a Tyrrell and performs like a Tyrrell and gets results like a Tyrrell, it's basically a Tyrrell. It quacks isn't it? like a Tyrrell. <laughs> exactly. Um. That is unfortunately the direction Williams has gone in. Uh, whether it can turn around, I think if it's going to turn around, it will be a very different Williams to to the Williams of the last sort of well, the first decades of, of its history. I think it needs to fundamentally change. Um, I don't think the new rules, whether they come in in 2022, 2023, where whenever, um, I, I don't think that will suddenly propel them back uh back into the into the lead fight i think there's a lot of soul searching that still needs to be done Pete, and th- there just needs to be a fundamental o- overhaul of uh the way it, it it operates its business and also um i'm not saying that they need a wholesale change in the leadership and executive side or anything like that but there there needs to be serious um serious questions asked about what type of racing team williams wants to be in the medium and long-term future yeah, I think the parallels are unmistakable. And I think it's more of a question of um, how do they stop themselves falling into oblivion? And one of the ways that they might have done um, was lost to them when they lost Lawrence Stroll as an investor. Um, and you look at the ambitious plans that he's got for um, what's going to become the Aston Martin team, you, you just wonder what he may have made... W- of Williams had he'd been had there been the the will to um, allow him to be part of it. So, will they find a, a, another uh, someone with as deep pockets as that and with a similar ambition and vision? 
Um, might might the Latifi family uh, be able to do that? Would it want to? Um, is there going to be somebody like that of that caliber somewhere down the road? But uh, I think on its current trajectory, um, it's it's uh, it, it it's just going to exist at at that level of, of survival. The um the, the the stroll point is is really interesting because if Williams is in any way going to fall off the grid as a name or reduce its presence as a name, doing so to facilitate Aston Martin as a works team is about as um, acceptable as a, a transition as I can imagine for a for a manufacturer with Williams's heritage and you know Great British pride and all of that allowing allowing Aston to to take up the reins and with with a with a Williams time would have been would have been brilliant and instead we Williams finds themselves in a situation where they're um you know you've got the the fate of the Williams advanced engineering group and what they're trying to do to to raise capital for the company as a whole shows that um a little bit like the other examples over the last 20 years there's just short-term decisions that are um, ultimately hurting its medium and long-term prospects. I think also we have to factor in the current global situation, the the COVID-19 pandemic will create some additional stresses for, for the team. Williams is probably the most uh, vulnerable economically, so it would be interesting to see how that how they respond to that. I mean, the things you were saying in defence is, uh, Williams, is they have proved resilient over the years. A lot of other teams have been... Uh, have been kind of selected out of Formula One, the the kind of independence. So they have done a good job to to make it this far. So that there is, I think, some benefit to that kind of Williams spirit that has created some resilience and robustness in the team. But eventually, that's not that's not going to be enough in in perpetuity. There are good there are good personnel there, and I think it might it might be a question of making kind of further changes to the way they operate. Maybe they maybe it's not necessarily a question of replacing leadership as some people always like simplicity doing it but perhaps they need to augment it with a few more uh a few more specific skill sets to really tackle the challenges of uh of formula one although obviously doing that kind of thing at a time when economic situation is uncertain is uh it is difficult but i think it's going to be um it, it could be a kind of tough couple of years now for uh for williams in this uh in this situation i just think we all we all hope they do well because there's a lot of affection for the team uh there is great there's there's always great joy when they have their uh, their occasional flashpoints of good uh, of good results. Probably that Maldonado win in 2012 in Spain was the kind of most enthusiastically greeted one of, of any Grand Prix win over the past uh, past couple of decades. You'd uh, you'd say even when the uh, even when the garage caught fire rather terrifyingly. But uh, yeah, we, we're coming at this from a, a, a position of, of great admiration for Williams, and we hope they can uh, turn things around. And that there is a little bit of a sign of an upward curve this year. So let's hope they can. can continue that well before we finish scott have you been preparing a scots people or do you or do we have to wait to next week for the return of that yeah i must admit i completely forgot about it shocking shocking see i forgot about it uh last week you forgot about it this week what, what was your last question can you even remember that no nope, re- not at all i've let the people down i'm not gonna lie they they gave me they gave me their faith and i threw it back in their faces well can i suggest that we uh scots people question this week is what questions should scott have asked that's a great question. So you, you can find Scott on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Scott? At smitchellf1. And obviously you can use the the, the hashtag that pe- people have genuinely, my people have genuinely started to use the hashtag Scott's people, which I love. 
well, there we go. You've, you've let them down this week, but you'll have a chance to redeem yourself uh, in our in, in next week's uh, next week's podcast. Uh, well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell. Despite that failure, uh, Glenn Freeman and Mark Hughes, and uh, yeah, good luck to Williams in their bid to uh, fight back and, and prove that uh, that there is a, a bright future for this uh, illustrious team that everyone has so much uh, love for. Uh, do head to our website, uh, therace.com, and don't forget the hyphen. Uh, loads of material to read there. You can even find a, a piece from Mark on the uh, the the underachievement of Williams BMW so if you want to read a bit more about that uh, you can head there obviously our other podcast Bring Back V10s hosted by Glenn Freeman as we've mentioned we've got the Gary Anderson F1 show we've got a MotoGP and a Formula E podcast so lots to listen to there and do check out our YouTube channel as well so stay home stay safe and we'll be back soon with more <laughs>